Welcome to the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast, Explosions and Fire. I'm Brian. And I'm Aaron. And this week on the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast, we're having an age-old discussion on what is preferable, the use of miniatures, maps, and terrain, or just the plain old theater of the mind. What do you think, Brian? Well, it seems like the line has already been drawn in the sand. (laughs) I am strongly pro-minis, pro-maps, and pro-terrain. Aaron, where do you fall? Well, I'm definitely pro-theater of the mind. I mean, I think we're going to have a real battle on this one. Yeah, although I will say that right off the bat, I'm confused because some of the coolest minis and terrain that I've ever seen in a game were at your table. Explain yourself, sir. Well, I do love minis, and I think the times you've seen them the most is whenever we're at One Shot Weekend or doing really big events. Mm. And, you know, I I like them for one shots where you can kind of drive the narrative towards where you want to go. But I think that I like it better from a narrative standpoint to not have to rely on railroading players into a situation just because you have the toys to put it out there. All right, so already I'm thinking that you're winning this argument because (laughs) the last campaign that I ran, I made one map at a time, and if the players tried to go anywhere else, (laughs) I would just forbid it because I I hadn't I didn't have a map for that. Right. Or they would want to go somewhere, and I'm like, nope, you can't go there. There's a there's a there's a ravine between you and that location, and it's 500 feet across. Sorry, (laughs) but I bet I bet that we could. You know, gin up some some fake drama, and you can tell me why you're more pro mini than not so much pro theater of the mind. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, this harkens back to what I've been talking about for maybe the whole time we've been doing this podcast, which is the things that got me into this hobby to begin with. I've talked a lot about the artwork and the source books, but the miniatures really have my heart. And there was a company back in the late 70s, early 80s called Grenadier, I think is how you say it. Mm -hmm. And I had so many of these minis and they were made out of like lead. And I I think maybe I mean that literally, these were heavy little suckers. And you could always see the mold lines on the sides of the (laughs) characters. And I remember I had the little box with halflings. And I had the little box with spellcasters. I had a skeleton elephant with a little like, you know, little archers on its back and things like that. And again, and this is the big disconnect between you and me or the big difference between you and me. My early experience with the hobby was all about the other stuff and not playing the game. And you just dove right in and you're like, I'm running the game. (laughs) So for me, I find the whole culture of minis its own entity. And I could totally see and have for years been someone who's into the minis and buying them and painting them and looking at them and Mm. dusting them every week and not actually playing. And so there's that piece for me. There's also the maps. And there's been a lot of times where I will spend dozens of hours on one map, which makes no sense. But it's a labor of love, as we've talked about often. So I, I love that piece as well. And then as a player, I will say that having terrain that's three-dimensional is my favorite thing. Because when you see an overhead map, and this is actually one of my gripes with playing on like Roll20 or something. When you see an overhead map, it could be a castle and the walls could be 50 feet high, which is so dramatic and such an awesome number. But on the map, it's a line. It's represented by a line. (laughs) And it's so like, for me, 
And so I love being at a table where I can see how high 50 feet would be and how my, my character probably doesn't have enough hit points to fall from that height. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's that level of immersiveness and, and drama at the table. And also this sort of focal point where we're all looking and staring at the, at the table and the little, the little critters that are upon it. Yeah. And I could totally agree with that, especially from a map standpoint, which I will come back to. But if we're going to talk formative things, I would say I could use a, a one word noun for what I think is more of a formative thing for me from a narrative play or the theater of the mind standpoint. And that's the game Zork. I don't know if you ever played the game Zork. No. But... So you wrote that in your notes and I have no idea what that is or <laughs> what you're talking about. So please enlighten me. So Zork is a game that came out in the very late 70s, I think 77 or 78, somewhere around there. I was not alive yet to actually play the game, but it's one of the first real computer games that I did play. And the way that it works, it's all text-based, and it describes you in the game what you're doing, and then you have to actually type out commands back to it to say what you want to do. And so it's there's no pictures. It's an entirely DOS-based sort of computer game where you just read what's going on, And you have to infer from there. So I think like in the first Zork, you actually start off like it it describes as being in some sort of white house in the middle of the woods or something. And then you go on essentially a a D&D styled quest where you have to figure out things. And you have to say, oh, I'd like to turn to the east or I'd like to turn to the west. And I pick up the candle or I do these things. And it's an amazing game. They actually had three, two sequels, three games in total. And at the end of the third one, you actually become a dungeon master, which is kind of funny. It's almost like my own baptism by Zorking, I guess. But <laughs> Are you a classically trained Zorkian dungeon master? <laughs> Absolutely. But it's it's one of those games where I think that a lot of modern media that we have, I'm just as guilty of this myself because like right now I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3, which is, is a glorious game. But we take a lot of the imagination out of play. The, the, the developers do it for us. They, mm. they do the imagination for us whereas games like zork is we have to imagine it to make it work just like reading a book like we have to read the page and see the characters in our mind or see the activity that's why it it gives you a a paragraph or a few lines and you have to say i would like to turn this direction or i would like to do this activity or i would like to fight against the wizard doing this versus that being hand-fed to you i guess Mm. yeah Again, I hate that you're crushing me in this argument. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight back. But this reminds me of the classic example in cinema of showing it or not showing it. Mm. And I think the most successful horror, like terrifying moments on camera actually happen off camera. And the most yeah. famous example is Reservoir Dogs and Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. when the the ear scene where oh, yeah. one of the characters and, and Tarantino famously filmed it twice. He filmed the prosthetic ear being removed from the actor and the blood and all that. And then there's another take where he just pans up to the brick wall and you just hear screaming. And that is ultimately the worst thing because your mind is doing crazy things. Right, right. Well, I mean, I would say another really good example of that is Jaws. A good example of mm. theater. Of because mind. the, yeah, because it the, the shark broke. Yeah, because Bruce broke, like Steven Spielberg is going to have him in there like way more in the movie. Like, here's this very expensive shark that I built. Here's Mm -hmm. the mechanism, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it just kept breaking in the salt water. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you know what? I I think we could actually make this more enjoyable if we take the shark out of it. 
Yeah, and this may be uh, a little bit of a controversial point, but Blair Witch Project, mm, mm-hmm. there's no witch. <laughs> right, exactly. He's just standing in the corner. There's, hardly, the any, there's hardly anything in there. <laughs> right. And it's that, that movie terrified me. Oh, no, it's a very scary movie. And I remember what made it work the most is, I don't know if you remember this, but before that movie released, they actually had a thing on IFC, I believe, like almost like a, a fake documentary about these mm. filmmakers going missing. So people went into it. This is really like, like thought really it was real. the dawn of the internet, yeah. Um, where they thought, oh my god, these the people really died making this movie, and there must be a real witch and all this other stuff. But very much so. What you're saying is, this is one of those theater of the mind kind of movies where you barely see anything. You see a lot of nostril shots and snot, which they made fun of in Scary Movie, which is hilarious. But they don't they don't really show the monster. They don't really show the horror. You just feel the horror. Oh, yeah. If I was listening to this podcast, I'd be like, Aaron is right. Brian (laughs) does not know what he's talking about. Now, I will bat it back to you because I do like minis. And I do think that they set off a game. I mean, one of my favorite things, both from an experiential standpoint, but then also going back and watching the video of it, is when I made that giant void walker for One Shot Weekend out of a mannequin. And everybody had this giant battle on platforms on top of this void walker but people had no idea this was coming and then kind of bringing it in from outside and then showing it to them and then yeah and that's why that's why i thank you for helping build my case that <laughs> that was of all the dnd that i've ever played of all the roll top or roll top of all of the tabletop role-playing games i've ever played that was the singular coolest mini situation tabletop situation i've ever seen and as you recall i'm sure play stopped for a good 10 minutes probably and i think you were probably annoyed but we all just were taking pictures <laughs> it was such a cool map but it was three feet high right and there was like scaffolding and stairs and all that kind of stuff and then the other one which i think i've mentioned as well was the lord of the rings tomb room right. where the where the the goblins and the troll are attacking you made that map too and that was awesome <laughs> Well, thank you. And I and I, I do agree. Like when you bring those things out, it does make the game pop. It makes it exciting. The question is, if it's not a one shot, how do you get there? Right? Like if you're playing a campaign, a sustained campaign, like if I take Strahd, for example, Strahd has an insane map for like Strahd's castle. I don't remember how many floors there are. I think there's like seven or eight. There's like subterranean chambers. It's crazy. If If I were to think about myself building that miniature set, I would just be like bated breath waiting for the players to choose it, right? And it's like, like, are they going to choose it? Am I going to railroad them into choosing this thing because I really want to unveil this amazing Dwarven Forge set or this handcrafted set or whatever it is because I spent a lot of money on it or time on it or, you know, all this thing. But am I am I enriching the story or am I enriching this moment? And that's yes. where I get stuck with it. Yes, and you have described my cross to bear as a dungeon master, <laughs> which is I am like obsessed with maps and and terrain. But I, the thing that plagues me and literally keeps me up at night is how could I keep up? Mm-hmm. And my dream would be that I would have such an extensive collection or such a versatile collection of terrain that I could whip it up. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm sitting at this this table where we play at my house and then there's this little room in the back. And my dream is that there's 
a little workshop in there and I could take a five minute break and I could whip up any terrain that, that my players could, could conjure. Yeah. But in the real world, I'm probably 2% <laughs> along that journey. And that is like really stressful for me. Yeah. And that's, that's the other part of it too, is it does create a, a lot of stress as a dungeon master where you're wanting to make this almost, I don't know, like Insta worthy sort of shot where you're not mm. really in the moment, enjoying the moment where like you're on the beach, right? But you're taking a picture of yourself on the beach. You're not actually enjoying the beach. And man, it's amazing when you do have those, those moments of clarity where you can actually bring out uh, a big landscape and people can like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And they work through it and it takes some time and it's great. But also imagine if you didn't have that. Imagine if the players chose to go somewhere else entirely, someplace that may not even be in your narrative. And now you're making a new improv story together. Mm. And it somehow now it weaves into this original story that you hadn't even planned, but now it's there and it's great. And the, you find those moments, I think, in improvisation that are very hard to find when you're really wanting them to go down that corridor that you built. And it'd be great if they could just go in that pit trap already. Yeah. Yeah. I, although I will say as a, as a counterpoint, I think one of the things that I found, if I really spend a lot of time on terrain or even just a 2D map that I draw out, mm-hmm. what I've found is sometimes the players will start to get really into what is in front of them. So, you know, if I describe a room, for instance, let's say they're just they're kind of like just doing a little dungeon crawl vibe and they just come into this room and I'm like, okay, it's a it's a bedroom. There's a couple of, you know, chests, uh, a couple. There's a dresser, uh, a footlocker, you know, they'll they'll just okay, we want to go through all this stuff Mm -hmm, is the chest locked. But if it's on the page or if it's in front of them, often there's this really immensely gratifying scenario where they're like, what about that shutter? on that window mm-hmm. what about oh what what's that what's that carpet made out of can i pull up that carpet how many drawers can i pull you know what i mean and, and then they start to almost in a weird way like role play with the room maybe that's not yeah. the right way of saying it but you know what i mean you know that that pleasure that you get as a as a dm when your players are just doing it all by themselves and they kind of don't need you Mm-hmm. And and so I have found, and I've been at that place where my maps were sufficiently involved, where they're just doing that. Right. They're just vibing with the map and the map is almost like coming live in front of them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my ideal state. Uh, but boy, do I work for it. I, I, I mean, <laughs> seriously, I, I think once I spent on the, on the, the final boss map mm-hmm. for the campaign, I'm at least put in seven hours mm-hmm. in maybe three days which is not healthy <laughs> <laughs> for sure and i barely i barely made it like i stayed up half the night before i ran that game yeah and that's that's one of those things you kind of get stuck in and it's great because it does end up being rewarding when they're there and they're in the moment but it's one of those the situations where you kind of do the imagining for them mm. where yeah, it's great for them to see all the little props in the room, to see the shutters, to see the rug they can pull back. But also, this just like kind of I think moves them away from taking notes. I think that's a big problem in D anD D nowadays versus mm-hmm. the old theater of the mind days, where almost everybody at the table is taking notes and wanting to remember what they're seeing and doing. They're just kind of I, I wouldn't say they're being lazy about it, but when you already have it in front of you, you're letting your senses do the talking, but then. When you're out of that moment, you're out of those endorphin spillovers, you're not really remembering what happened outside of the big reveals or the big moments. But like you may not remember, oh, yeah, I totally pick up that sword out of that. 
but then also I, the, the on the flip side you get the issue i think sometimes where players get overly obsessed with little details they now see so mm. like i've had those things especially like in roll 20 where we're doing vtt stuff and there'll be some random little speck in a picture that i haven't even thought about or, or noticed and I'm like oh my mm. god what's that and i'm like i don't know that's the bedpan of holding i don't know what that is in the room right now like it's just yeah. some random thing and the, but they get obsessed over just these little things because that's what they see versus what they might imagine being in the room to quote freud sometimes a cigar is just a cigar <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay so i didn't think we were going to get here i thought this was going to be a battle royale and one of us is going to win here <laughs> but i would like to suggest which i think this is just me catching up to you would the ideal be largely theater of the mind, but with punctuated moments of awesome maps and minis? 100%. I think that you need props in any game, whether it's this, Monster of the Week, anything else, where it's something tactile, something visual that you can do something with. I think that really enhances the experience because it's more than just like, hey, let me see what I can imagine is happening versus like, here's a, a cursed box. I'm going to hand it to you. Hold the box, right? Yes. And they're like, wow, this is this is a thing. This is a thing that exists in the 3D realm, right? And I can feel it and understand it. And now I can understand what my my character might be doing in the game. So it's amazing to have those things. Or if you have like tactile puzzles where they can touch them and move them around and all that other stuff, that's great. The real trick, though, is just to make sure you, you balance both of them. And I'll, I'll give a very nerdy reference here, because I do think, honestly, both of them are important. And this is why it's kind of clickbaity, where we might lean towards a certain direction, you and I. But the reality is that we incorporate both into all of our games. But there's a old canonical thing with Star Wars back before they got rid of the old expanded universe and then trashed it for everything else when Disney bought them. But there's a part after the original trilogy where Luke Skywalker kind of goes to the dark side a little bit, and then he figures out, hey, this is bad, and then comes back. And then now he has kind of enhanced Luke Skywalker, where he has both the light and dark powers, and now he's the best Luke Skywalker. And I think that the best games come from incorporating all of this. I wasn't sure where the hell you were going with that, but you <laughs> landed it beautifully. Yes. Okay. No, I, I get it. And it, it low-grade pisses me off that you already knew about this before we started this but i'm just getting to the to the point here but i think that this i find very liberating for me because it frees me up to confidently go into a game as a dm and, and know that whatever they come up with i can wing it yeah and create and i i think i've told you this before but some of the best moments that i've had at a table were things that i 100 improvised mm, mm -hmm. and that there's no way that i even knew that was going to come up at the table let alone you know prep with a map or run away into another room and quickly build a map right but again i and i i guess i'm happy that we're not taking minis and all this off the table no not at all and even more so in my mind what we're doing is we're adding the props to the kind of bundle right mm -hmm. it's so i started by saying minis maps and terrain but now i'm going to add handouts mm -hmm. magic items anything that you can hold or put in front of you as a visual reminder or i even like letters you know like if you if your players mm, yeah. intercept a parcel i would think it would be so cool if they could actually physically open the envelope yeah and read it and look at the handwriting and 
I love handing maps out. Like here's a map of the town. You bought it from a kid at the, you know, at the, when you, when you came into the town and this shows you the basics of the town. Like that's really fun mm -hmm. because then they don't have to ask you what else they go. Oh, well, what's this over here? It looks like a farm. Yeah, it does look like a farm. Do you want to walk over there and check it out? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which, I mean, it is it is a bit funny to think about these medieval towns that all just have random maps, you know, that are akin to modern maps nowadays, where it's like, but also, like, it's it's more convenient for gaming. And I, I think about a lot of the older maps, and I, I am not opposed to maps. I, I, I don't like those being lumped in with minis, because I think you could easily play a game with no minis, but all maps. But a lot of the old school play was the DM had the map and didn't share it. So, for example, if you're doing a dungeon crawl, you would know exactly what the map looks like and you would just tell the players. So a lot of them would try and draw it themselves. Like, let me do my own cartography. If the, I'll get my own grid paper. And if the DM says that the hallway is 15 feet long and 10 feet across, I'll know how to draw that in a grid. And so they start understanding what it looks like versus just that being fed to them, right? Where like yeah. you kind of have to learn what's happening versus just semi-absorbing it. Yeah, I'm just recalling what Stu said from uh, Vintage RPG last week, where he was like, the art in early RPGs was so amazing, and the maps were so lame. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They were like civil engineers, you know, just like using uh, graph paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like somehow in there, it can be really amazing. You just have to be able to sort of interpret it. <laughs> right. Well, that's the other thing, too. Speaking of Stu, is that, you know, I I've started getting into his West Marches uh, conversations on discord and what's funny is that the players that he has right now are kind of hyper focused on something that's not even really a part of the game where he has this you know beautiful hex grid map of where everything is and they keep going down this rabbit hole of some bathhouse that they found at some point and he has not made a map for the bathhouse it's not really integral to the story but he kind of feels now compelled to now make this bathhouse map versus like if if you don't if you don't have that map and you want to just do theater of the mind, like let's talk about a bathhouse. I'll tell you what the different floors are, where the dimensions are, who's in the bathhouse. If you really want to play that, let's play that right now. Do you owe Stu like a little bit of a pep talk or an intervention maybe? <laughs> I don't know. You never know, really. It's always hard to see when, you know, because I, I think that's one of those things where there's a lot of DMs who really get lost in the weeds of making this beautiful world building like I've heard Matt Colville talk about that where they just build these immense worlds that oftentimes will maybe get touched like three percent of by the players because mm -hmm. yeah you might have in your idea what the different economies and politics are and, and where the locations of the different businesses are but the likelihood of the players wanting to dive into that is small but then now you as a perfectionist as a world builder need to make that happen and yep and then you're a, building a game for yourself not for the players exactly and i think the same thing happens with those minis right or at least those mm -hmm. mini maps like if you have dwarven forge if you go out and spend hundreds of dollars thousands of dollars on a on a, a set for a dungeon or a set for a town you're going to play that damn town regardless of whether or not the players want to go to that town you've spent your money you want to go do it versus let's have a game where i might pull in some of those pieces we might make it work if you get there at some point we'll pull it out that's great right but like i can't imagine like you're bated breath sitting around a table waiting to get to this town. And finally, it's almost the end of the session, uh, right? And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, let's go to the town. And you're like, oh, well, let me just take an hour to set this up right at uh, close here. Hopefully, that we'll have this ready for the next session sort of thing. And so it's just like it's that 
that balance. And that's why I love one shots, for example, or at least almost like one shots where they kind of move and they are like fluid with what you're doing. Like, uh, I don't want to name my other one shot that you didn't get a chance to play in for one shot weekend, but the one around a temple that may or may not have been obscured from you uh, that there mm-hmm. may have been myths around. Right. But the way that that game worked is I had all the different rooms that I'd built for it. And it wasn't, it wasn't a linear path. The, the players would actually either roll, I would roll, they would make certain decisions, solve certain riddles, and they would end up in different rooms. And there wasn't necessarily a need to have everything ready to go or some massive six-foot, eight-foot-long thing. It's just you get to the room when you get to the room, or you get to the place when you get to the place. Mm. I feel very called out right now because the last game that I DM'd was for middle school kids. <laughs> and I had, I think you've seen it. I spent a lot of money on this like fold out paper terrain, right. which I think is amazing. Yeah. And so I had a town, I had the ruined church in the middle. Why is it ruined? Oh, they're going to find out <laughs> the little village and all this stuff. And these little people, decided to not interact with my town and it was on the table from the minute they sat down and they decided to do everything in the forest and run around and never go into my town that was in front of us the whole time and the lady at the library that was was supporting the game she was just like i'm so sorry but you know it's like to your point like i wanted to play the town (laughs) but like this isn't if it's that's all I wanted to do, then I should just become a model builder. Yeah, which well, it occurs to me maybe I should just do that. <laughs> but that's <laughs> what I'm doing. But you know, the reality is, is that our hobby and our business is is around products like these. So it's not it's not crazy. It's not calling anybody out necessarily. But that's the the pitfall that you end up in, where you want to play these because they're really cool, and a lot of time and effort and imagination goes into them. And you should be able to play them. The question is, how do you get there without kind of infringing upon the player's play experience? Yeah. And also, we, we've talked about the expense of time, but also mm-hmm. of cash. And in my dream world, if this room adjacent to me had all the Dwarven Forge pieces that I needed, it would cost me $100,000 and I would need to have eight people in there. <laughs> right. And even then... I don't think I would be able to keep up with the insanity that the players would be throwing at me in terms of where they were going to go and what they were going to try to do. For sure. Yeah. I like, I like little pieces that you can kind of reuse for other stuff. You know, one of our our good friends, Taryn, uh, who's a, a DM also, you know, he had a game where he was running with wooden blocks and he just moved the blocks around to represent different things. And that's great. Uh, that, I mean, that works really well. Obviously, you know, sometimes you might want a little bit more than that, but that's really kind of like you get the, the outline. Like I, I had our game that we ran with the demonic goat and that had plenty of ruined columns and little furniture and all this other stuff. And that just required moving things around. And then did you just find the goat? Oh, there's the goat. Yes. Yeah. I know we're not broadcasting the video of this, but the... I'll, I'll take a screenshot of the demonic goat. I mean, Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let me smile. <laughs> Um, Perfect. But but what I love about this is I'm sitting in front of probably, I don't know how many you can see, like 50 miniatures behind me. Right. And this is just a small little sliver of the room that I'm sitting in. Mm-hmm. Including and, your demonic oak. And, I, and I, I will give you props for that because it's one of the things I do love about hosting there as a DM is that 
I can just go to you and say, hey, Brian, can you give me a bugbear? I'd like to go ahead and use that right now. And then you will invariably have some version of a bugbear or something like a bugbear where I can put that in the game. Mm. And uh, uh, related note, I have I have deer now, too. Ooh, so, nice. you know, you could just yeah. throw in some some wild deer in your next game. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> so I think that we can both agree that uh, as we come to a close, that the most important thing is that you find a way to have fun for yourself as a game master, but then also as a player. And I, I, I think that the best games use a combination of these two things. Sometimes some games a little more heavy on them, like Monster of the Week is definitely more theater than mine. D&D oftentimes, because it's more tactical, I think, than people would like to pretend. It It is more heavy on the mini and the terrain, you know. So I think that we could both agree that we love both of these and that they, they work equally well. Yeah, and this to me dovetails to a month ago, maybe, when we talked about just like tips for DMs and not going insane. Mm, yes. And I think part of it was just like, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Right. And so for me, you know, backing away from my, I need the perfect map for every scenario to theater of the mind sometimes is right. But sometimes rolling out a piece of paper or just a, a little grid and then getting out a dry erase marker is the right thing too. Just so we can tell the distance yeah. between things. Cause sometimes depending on the, the, the crew that those sort of like mechanical components become really important. Yeah. And I would say as a challenge to you who are listening, if you are familiar with our Instagram page, you know, maybe, maybe put, tell us what you think, you know, send us a, a DM and tell us what you think about which one you like using more, whether it's theater of the mind or whether it's minis, what do you often find yourself kind of getting stuck into and let us know. So that way we can kind of share that with the community. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, I guess this is a good stopping point. Thanks everyone for being a part of my therapeutic experience with Aaron, <laughs> where I let myself off the hook financially and emotionally for being the perfect DM with all the miniatures and all the train. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope to have you next time. Thanks friends. And uh, as Aaron just said, we're on Instagram. We're on, we have our website. And we also are on Etsy. So please check us out, visit us. And yes, please send us messages. Tell us what you like. Tell us where we should go next with this. And thanks everyone for listening. See ya.